Welcome to StartupCTO.io, the podcast where Miles Mathias and Kevin Owaki interview engineering leaders about management, startups, and software, because your CS degree didn't teach you to lead. And now, StartupCTO.io. Hello. Our guest today is Dave Zwieback, author of Beyond Blame and an engineering leader in various organizations in and around New York City. Lately, we've been tagging our episodes by category. This episode is best listened to if you're into management, career growth, or soft skills. If not, maybe worth checking out another episode in the archives. You can browse categories on our website at startupcto.io. Enjoy! I am your host, Kevin Wacky, and I'm here with your co-host, Miles Mathias. We are honored to be joined this week by Dave Zwieback, the CTO of Lotus Outreach and the author of the book, Beyond Blame. Welcome, Dave. Great to be here. Great to have you. Could you tee us off by telling us a little bit uh, about yourself? Uh, sure. I seem to be my own favorite subject um, in terms <laughs> of conversation. So with that in mind... Um, Let's see, I've been um, in and around what you might call IT for something like 20 years and had all kinds of roles, starting with systems engineering in a relatively large-scale uh, environments. Uh, spent close to 15 years on and off in finance in New York. Um, and then, having done that, moved into the startup world and uh, have been in it since about 2011 in uh, various capacities um, in engineering leadership. I know that you're you're very passionate about a lot of uh, a lot of aspects about engineering cultures, and and I'd like to get into them by by way of comparison. So you worked in finance for for several years. In, in New York, and you've transitioned to web startups. Was that, a, was that a culture shock, and how has that informed how you view startup culture? Yeah, I mean, so I was very lucky to work in uh, sort of reasonably large-scale companies in finance, in places like J.P. Morgan or J.P. Morgan Ch- Chase uh, and Morgan Stanley. Basically, if it had the name Morgan in it, I seem to have worked in it. The interesting thing there is I got to sort of see a cross-section of functional and dysfunctional cultures. Um, And this also includes, you know, the startup world. Um, I think the saying goes that all cultures are dysfunctional, just in different ways. And so I certainly have had a lot of first-hand experience in that. And what I sort of kept thinking about and... I don't think this will come as a surprise to your listeners, is just the role, the extent to which culture has an impact on performance, on team performance or company performance. And so this this became kind of my preoccupation, my focus um, over the last probably 10, 11 years as I transitioned into more of a people manager, you know, within technology as opposed to uh, hands-on technologist. The thing that I've been sort of paying attention to is 
this vague concept of team health. Mm-hmm. And I think it's relatively difficult to define it, but mm-hmm. I think it's very easy to actually see it and experience it. Um, and so, let's see. So I think that there's a sort of a colloquial definition of culture, which is has something to do with, you know, who is in the room and sort of do we have a foosball table or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we wear jeans to work or uh, slacks? Um, you know, and those things are not unimportant, but they certainly won't give you the full story. And I, I usually like to illustrate this by um, sort of this example. So let's say you have two organizations, and both of them um, offer food, like dinner, for instance, uh, to their employees. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at it sort of from the outside, it seems like, hmm, it's kind of the same the same idea, right? Like you have food, you have, you know, if you stay in late in the office, then there's food. Mm-hmm. Except that the way that these two different companies arrived at that practice of having food, having dinner at the office is very different. In company A, um, you know, what basically gets discussed is this. The cost of the dinner is about 8 to $9 per person. And each person winds up staying for another one to two hours. The average cost of an engineer is somewhere around $50 an hour. And even if they're sort of uh, eating for an hour, then we still get some kind of a additional productivity from them. So you do sort of a back-of-a-napkin calculation. You say, all right, good to go. Let's have food in the office at night. Um, so that's company A. And company B is, hmm, it looks like folks are staying late. They're working late. And uh, we should just have dinner. Mm-hmm. And so the two very, very different cultures that manifest themselves in seemingly similar ways, right? We have food in the office at night. Right. But they cannot be more, more different. And one is sort of what you might call not a people-first culture. Mm-hmm. And the other one is, right? So one is trying to extract as much quote-unquote value from each individual uh, even though that might actually be relatively short-sighted and certainly not helpful to the person um, while the other is sort of treating the folks that are in the room as adults sure. um, and so this this has been kind of this is an example of uh, the difficulty of judging culture from the outside uh, because they often appear, you know, like you go to any startup, yes, there's a foosball, t- foosball table there or, you know, beer on tap or nitro coffee on tap or kombucha on tap or whatever is the thing that is on tap these days. Um, but that's not, you, you really can't tell very right. much about the culture just from these kinds of things. Got it. So I think we've established that having a people first culture is important when you have an engineering organization or I'm assuming maybe any knowledge work. Uh, what are other patterns and anti-patterns that you've seen in, in team culture and team health along the years? So let's, let's be clear here. So this is a preference of mine. So I'm very clear that I want to work in people first organizations, organizations okay. that peep, put uh, people first, before, you know, projects, product, you know, profit. 
it is this is something that I, through many years of sort of trial and error, found very true to be for myself that I do really well in organizations that put people first. Mm-hmm. I do my best work in those kinds of organizations. Now, if you're going to send a person to Mars, I think that's a good example of a uh, mission first company. Right. And in fact, by joining that kind of an organization, you're sort of implicitly agreeing that, you know, we certainly don't want this to happen, but it might come to pass that we lose a person or two or whoever is, you know, on on that long trip to Mars, right? And that's sort of uh, perhaps a classic example of a mission-first company or organization. Mm -hmm. Um, So now, most of the time, you know, leaders, you don't really have to choose between, you know, people and the mission and the product and so on and so forth. They all sort of work together in, in concert. Um, you know, like there's no reason to have people in the room if you don't have a mission, right? And there's also uh, kind of the, the mission doesn't happen without the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the people might not really join your company if you don't have a mission that's inspiring and so, and so on, right? So most of the time you don't have to choose, except there will be times when you do. Um, and knowing which kind of a company you are, which kind of an organization you are, will help a lot in those kinds of times of stress. Um, for example, let me give an example. So, um, you can ask yourself or maybe your organization this, this question. Uh, do we have death marches? Mm-hmm. Right, so a death march is a sort of sustained period of uh, work. Um, that Usually, I think there's a, there's, there's a canonical definition somewhere, but I think it's... 80 hours or more a week over six weeks or more, mm-hmm. right? So this is not like an occasional late night or something like that. This is uh, this is a death march. Um, and there's a reason that it's called that because it basically <laughs> results, well, if it doesn't result in death, it certainly results in some kind of injury to the mm-hmm. team and to the individuals on it. Okay. And so... So that's a question that you can ask yourself as a, as a leader or in your organization. What what do we think about this? Do we categorically sort of refuse to have death marches? Uh, mm-hmm. Or is it an acceptable strategy for when we have some kind of a deliverable, a project or product or profit that's at stake, and we're going to go sort of all out to make that happen? Mm-hmm. And... So I, I picked this because, you know, I think um, a lot of folks in, in the startup world will hear this and they go, well, yeah, I mean, if we need to ship something out, we'll, we'll do what we need to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that, that's how you can start to sort of diagnose or uh, determine if your company or your organization is really people first because uh, leaders and people first organization will categorically say, no, we do not do this. Mm-hmm. And and they're not doing this, just to be clear, out of some kind of a hippie idea that, you know, we should treat our people nicely and kind of cuddle them and kind of not stress them out too much. Mm-hmm. They're actually doing this because they know that from research that in the long term, 
having a death march. So the, the research is fairly clear on this. 60 okay. hours, uh, sorry, six weeks or more at 80 hours a week, the productivity is the same as eight weeks, 40 hours a week. So basically, the death march gives you no additional uh, productivity. Mm-hmm. And, and was that research study, was that just knowledge workers? Was that was that programmers? Yeah, I believe it's knowledge workers. I, I, I can dig out the, the, the source, and maybe mm-hmm. we can include it in the show notes. But sure. uh, that's... Um, I don't don't remember the particulars. I remember the the headline basically. Got it. That's awesome. I mean, I'm a really big believer in people first organizations too, and um, I haven't read your book yet, but I'm definitely going to add to my list. And one of the books that I've always really enjoyed that talks a lot about that is Rework by um, the guys over at Basecamp, yep. um, who have a pretty similar message. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, as another example of you know, kind of the mission based, you going to Mars. I think something. Still, a lot of facts that come out, so it's it's you know easy to rush a judgment. But in today's world, we're seeing kind of a similar possible thing with Uber. Their mm-hmm. mission is to you know take over the world with autonomous vehicles, and um, we're seeing starting to see some results of their culture as a result of that. Um, uh, with uh, a lot of allegations going on right now, um, so it's yeah it's something that's a very real danger that we're all currently seeing in the startup world. Yeah, and I think the sort of colloquial understanding of people-first culture really boils down to, like, we're being nice to the people in the room, Mm -hmm. which is actually not what people-first is about at all, right? What we're doing is, in in a people-first kind of organization is we are setting up the conditions for people to succeed long term in a sustained way Um, and you know a lot of folks when they hear people first they think oh well it's really kind of there's not a lot of accountability uh, in these kinds of organization right so people just sort of like um, have a lot of excuses for like, well, you know, I really wanted to ship this, you know, by Friday, but you know, it's kind of think, kind of feeling tired or something like that. So this is what they imagine happens in people first organizations. Mm-hmm. Whereas in in um, in my experience of sort of being part of uh, these kinds of organizations and building them is that uh, people are actually more likely to be committed to their work uh, because. <laughs> It, it's we can think about it in, in, in a couple of different ways. So, um, whatever you think of sort of the Maslow hierarchy of needs, uh, you know that sort of pyramid which has sort of the the basic needs at the very bottom, such mm-hmm. as you know shelter and safety and uh, sort of physical well-being, uh, and at the very top it has actualization, self-actualization, and so. In people-first organizations, what we're doing is we're sort of taking care of the bottom, uh, the, the most fundamental um, of psychological and physical needs of humans, right? We're providing them a safe place where, you know, they're paid well, they're, they're reasonably taken care of, not necessarily cuddled, uh, but that enables them to then explore, to discover, to find 
their best work. And that's where we get the tremendous kind of boost in commitment and ownership and productivity in these kinds of organizations. It's interesting to hear that framed in the psychological framework of, of Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I've never heard it framed that way before. I, I'm interested in uh, shifting gears a little bit and talking uh, about your book, which you just got out and we'll have a link to in the show notes called Beyond Blame. It's a story of the network going down at a uh, Wall Street trading firm and management's looking to hold an engineer accountable, what they view as accountable. And I, I think a lot of the book is about accountability versus blame and how we can only pick pick one accountability and punishment. Could you tell me a little bit about how you came to, to that story arc and, and why you feel like accountability and punishment are are mutually exclusive with each other? Um, sure. So in in this whole world work, I have to say that I'm sort of standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think the person that brought this work, which basically comes from a couple of different fields that are overlapping, uh, specifically human factors, uh, complexity science, uh, cognitive science, uh, organizational psychology, uh, to name a few. Um, and so the person who brought all those ideas into our field is uh, John Alspa, the CTO of Etsy. And um, I met John, uh, well, many years ago when I was still actually working in finance. And uh, he gave one of his uh, subtle presentations on deploying 10 times a day or something like that. And obviously blew my mind. And I started digging more deeply into this field. And uh, what, having worked sort of on Wall Street in financial services for a long time and having seen uh, people uh, blamed, uh, punished, fired, demoted, their bonuses docked mm-hmm. for doing their normal work, you know, it always puzzles me. Like, why is this happening? Is this actually helping? Um, and so when I met John, it kind of clicked. And um, the the research that the book is based on comes from a whole bunch of other fields, such as automotive safety, uh, airline safety, uh, trans- basically transportation and medical safety fields. And they have discovered that, um, again... You're, we are all working within very complex systems. And systems uh, means not just computer systems, but also the organizations that create them, that operate them. And depending on how you define a system, it's kind of, it's up to you how you define a system, how you define the system's boundary. But the system can also include customers, suppliers, the world at large. Mm-hmm. So, so, but generally speaking, we work with complex systems. Like, I mean, if you want to have a sense of uh, what I mean by complex, <coughs> we can uh, we can take Linux, the Linux kernel, as an example. Mm-hmm. The last time I checked, I think there were about 17 million lines of code. Now, 17 million lines of code basically means that it's beyond any individual's ability to really reason about it holistically. Right. 
and given the sort of the average number of defects per thousand lines of code, there's basically thousands and thousands of opportunities to be fundamentally surprised by how the Linux kernel functions in production unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a, that's the feeling of working in a complex system of, hmm, I didn't know I was going to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, because of that, because we're working with progressively more complex systems, right, the, the things that we built on top of the Linux kernel, right, are, are orders of magnitude more complex and kind of uh, exponentially more complex. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that we work with these types of systems has to be very, very different than the way, the way we work with systems uh, that are, let's say, obvious, right? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, if you're building a burger at the world's uh, biggest family restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, you've done this billions and billions of times, and it's the same burger, right. regardless of whether or not you're in Venice Beach or California or in Venice, Italy. Mm-hmm. And so there, you've got a best practice, you can follow the checklist, you can follow a process, and you know with some reasonably small variance of how long it takes you to build a burger. And um, and therefore, you can also basically train anybody to do this. So that's kind of an example of an obvious system, this whole building a burger. Does that sound like the kinds of systems that we build and operate in the real world? Doesn't yeah, to me. I don't think so, no. <laughs> and so we need a different approach to basically learning in these kinds of complex systems. And what folks in uh, the other industries have found out, uh, like airline safety and so on, is that the sort of traditional approaches to learning especially to learning from failure, are no longer working. Again, because of the complexity. Mm-hmm. right? So what I mean by that is, traditionally, in if something goes wrong, you'll go and find the root cause. And very often, the root cause is a person who did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And so then the, the way you act is you retrain or you let this person go or you basically do something with the person to address the issue. In the new world uh, of sort of highly complex systems, whenever we see something that looks like human error, um, we immediately know that it's merely a symptom of a bunch of underlying conditions, probably something much deeper within the organization. And so if we actually want to improve the resilience, the reliability, the performance of our complex systems, we need to look deeper. And so that's that's sort of where this work uh, is coming from. Now, to answer your question about sort of this accountability versus blame, um, we first need to define what accountability means. So I actually looked it up, and according to the Navy of all places. Mm. Accountability is an ability to provide an account. So two things need to be in place for that. One is you need to be able to, 
you need to have that information, right? Mm -hmm. And the other is you need to be in a position where uh, providing an account, like, does not result in bad things happening to you. Mm-hmm. Because if you are in a place where blame and punishment are in the room, you're going to be a little more reticent, and mm-hmm. you're going to hold things back very right. naturally. Yeah, one of the quotes I've got written down from the book is, uh, how likely are you to f- share the full story of what happened if your job is on the line, especially the bits that might get you fired? That, that yeah. was a good one. <laughs> so, you know, like I said, I worked on Wall Street, and in, in a one particular situation, this is a true story, you know, there was a database outage, and then when folks went to look at the database logs to try to find out what happened, the database logs were wiped. <laughs> That's awful. Well, you know, and then you could also understand what's going on, right? Yeah. Immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so basically, this is the equation that we, that we have. So, okay, before we go there, so accountability is different than responsibility. Mm-hmm. Accountability is the ability to provide an account. Do you have the information and do you have the conditions, the environment, that allows you to provide a fuller account? And so this is the choice that you have to make. Uh, it's like a kind of, not really a cap theorem, but it's a basically a trade-off um, between accountability and blame, between accountability and punishment. And when people first hear this, again, they, they sort of go into the, oh, this is kind of some kind of hippie bullshit, like, you're just trying to be nice to people, mm-hmm. like, you, you don't want to hold them uh, responsible for their actions, and so on. Um, where in reality, the choice we're making is actually something similar to the choice that uh, prosecution lawyers make in mafia cases sometimes, mm-hmm. which is they offer immunity to people that they know have committed terrible, heinous crimes in exchange for information. So there's parallels in other industries. Well, yeah. I mean, so with the trade-off that these folks are making in, the, in, in these legal cases is they're saying that the information that they'll be able to extract from, from the person, that they'll be able to receive from these persons in exchange for immunity is more important than punishment. Mm-hmm. Now, dare I say that in most of the situations that we work with, nobody was killed, nobody died, nobody got hurt. You know, and maybe we didn't even lose uh, anything, Mm -hmm. right? And definitely, given how complex these systems are, if we want to make the systems that we work with more resilient, more high, you know, higher performing, we need that information especially when, th- when things go wrong. And it's way more important than the punishment or the blame or whatever we can inflict on the person who supposedly caused it. Mm-hmm. So that's really the, tr- the, the trade-off, the decision that we're making as leaders in, in these types of organizations. And by the way, there's a word, there's a term for the culture that I'm describing, and it's called just culture. Okay. Uh, and a kind of was born, uh, among other places, I think, in uh, post-apartheid South Africa, mm-hmm. where you had sort of the truth and recon- reconciliation, no punishment, f- in exchange for a fuller account of what happened. So, 
Yeah, you can you can think about it also kind of in 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 the types of justice that you're administering within your organization. So mm-hmm. it could be uh, retri- retributive, retri- how do I say that? Retri- Retribution, uh, yeah. So basically, sort of the old biblical idea of an eye for an eye, right? That the punishment has to be commensurate with the crime. So if a person took down, quote-unquote, a, you know, a server or a service for five minutes, well, that person might get a slap on the wrist and a stern talking to. If the outage lasted five hours, well, you know, the person might get a <laughs> let go. Mm-hmm. So that's the retributive sort of model of justice, eye for an eye, versus a restorative, which is given that this thing happened, which was undesirable, how can we restore the community and those affected by this thing to some sanity, some some uh, previous state of goodness, or new state of goodness? And so, again, this is a leader's decision. How, what kind of organization do I want to have? Mm-hmm. It seems like it's a choice, um, and... You know, there's a default choice here, too, which is very much kind of the old traditional old view of eye for an eye, retributive justice, mm-hmm. you know, punishment, blame, and so on. Right. However, those things, because you're trading those things off for a deeper understanding of how the system functions and how it breaks, uh, you are very likely introducing a lot of fragility into your systems. Mm -hmm. Meaning you're not learning as much as you can about how they function and how they break. Right. Right, because it's a complex system. Yeah. Exactly. Man, I had so many more questions that I wanted to ask you, but we're getting towards the bottom of the hour. Uh, Miles, why don't you tee off the first final question? Sure. What are your engineering values? Well, unsurprisingly, it's people first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talked a little bit about this at the top of the hour, as it were. Um, and again, it's not uh, its not to the exclusion of you know, product or projects or profit or whatever else that's going on in the company. It's the way we get those results is by focusing on the people and the health of the organization. All right. I am curious if you have any great engineering war stories. Yes, yeah, so I, was, I was thinking about this, uh, and the one that came to mind was uh, took me back to, I think, late October in 2012. Mm-hmm. So uh, we on the East Coast had this uh, little storm uh, called Superstorm Sandy. Right. Uh, might have heard about that one. Yep, saw some pictures of that one. So... Um, so this is, I don't exactly remember the, the dates, but it's like towards the 27th, 28th of October, somewhere around there. And so at the time, I was working for an education startup in New York called Newton. And we had always run out of uh, EC2, um, out of AWS, right, Amazon Web Services. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had, uh, and on, on the... On the 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 region that we're in was the the one that's housed in northern Virginia, 
Um, and so as the storm was coming uh, closer and closer to where we were in New York, we also saw that it was kind of the, the path, the projected path of the hurricane took it directly um, over the Amazon data centers in North Virginia. Oh, no. Yep. And so then we frantically, we had luckily um, sufficient notice and sort of like um, sufficient time to start uh, preparing for this. And so we frantically started building software and to copy our environment from the uh, region in the east to uh, one of the regions uh, on the west coast. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, we had some of the stuff, but not all of it, right? And so we're kind of going through, and at that point, probably trying to understand something like four years of uh, uh, accumulated software and data. And, uh, you know, our first attempt was to copy it over sort of single file, basically mm-hmm. sequentially, Uh over the internet, so that didn't work. Right. Uh, it would have taken us something like 30 days to do it, so we had to write software to uh, copy it uh, sort of in parallel from, uh, you know, to create backups, put them in S3, move the backups onto another region, uh, mm-hmm. or copy copy them. Um, this is probably a solved problem right now in AWS, but not in 2012. So this is where we had to still do a bunch of those things by hand. Right. Um, and I remember basically being on the phone, so being in New Jersey because, you know, this is where my family is, mm-hmm. uh, as the storm is starting to make landfall and the power going out. And then, you know, I was on the, on the, on the call, basically, the, uh, you know, conference call as my team was working to copy things to the West Coast. Uh, luckily, part of my team was, you know, one, one fellow was in Hawaii, another was in Denver at the time. So they were not affected and they could continue to work. But then basically my, my so the power went out and then uh, the cell phone connection went out. And, you know, on the one hand, there was this kind of slight anxiety of like, is it going to happen? Are we going to lose everything? Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it was this big relief because there's not a whole like <laughs> not a whole lot that I could do at that point. Right. So <laughs> there was this big weight off my shoulder because eh, you know my team has got it. It's up to yeah. them now. So that's my <laughs> it's, war always, story. That's a good one. I mean, you always plan for acts of God, and you actually encountered one and had to deal with Superstorm Sandy. Yes, exactly. And, it was almost a religious experience, right? <laughs> and that's and that's an interesting sort of argument for distributed teams. You you've got right there. You had that guy in Hawaii who was able to to keep turning on things, even though the East Coast was totally without power. Yeah, um, I mean, so this is this goes back to one of my earlier points, which is people first, right? So people first organizations will tend to make uh, like will favor uh, distributed teams in part because it's a kind of a it's a personal decision where you'd like to work from right Mm -hmm. and you might have you know family or other things that are keeping you in a particular geographic location um and so that's the reason why i've always sort of gravitated towards and worked on distributed teams because they are um sometimes not always 
more people first, right? Mm-hmm. And as a side effect, they also have this 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 uh, property of being able to deal with uh, acts of God uh, by being distributed. Sure. <laughs> more resilient, right? Yeah. Alrighty. Well, uh, Dave Zwieback is the CTO of Lotus Outreach, and he is the author of Beyond Blame, which uh, I've read, and I definitely recommend to our audience. There'll be a link to it in our show notes. Thanks so much for being on the show, Dave. My pleasure. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening. Find us at startupcto.io or on Twitter at startupctoio. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode.